Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 19A, an interview on Hayes, slavery, and civil rights with Dustin McLaughlin. I'm excited to welcome Dustin McLaughlin to the show today. Dustin is a historian at the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museums in Fremont, Ohio, where he's currently authoring a series of articles on Hayes' evolving views against slavery and on Reconstruction, which is where we'll focus most of our time today. Dustin, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. Now, the first question I have to ask is, is it true that the grand prize of a Paraguay reality TV show was once an all-expense-paid trip to the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museum in Fremont, Ohio? I read that in Alice Obscura. I have to know if that's real. Uh, yeah, you know, I feel like it's one of those uh, funny stories that kind of changed and evolved over time. I actually... Um, we we did it did happen. There was a girl who apparently was in a traffic accident in the late '90s. Uh, she was a 15 year old girl, and there was a reality show there called "Tell Me a Dream," oh. um, and it was basically kind of like um, you know people who've been through traumatic instances like that, and then they get their wishes uh, granted for them. What's funny about this story is it, her her wish was simply to go to the U.S. and so in her mind. She's going to New York City or somewhere like that. Um, and then what happened is, is they, the, you know, being Paraguay and, and Hayes being some of a, somewhat of a hero there, they kind of turned it also into a, um, a trip for her to see uh, their, one of their heroes. And so she ended up in Fremont, Ohio, instead of New York City, which I'm sure uh, probably upset her a little bit. But she, <laughs> but she did get a tour in the, in the late 90s. Um, and uh, yeah, she was here. I mean, every little girl's dream, the, the President Hayes, Presidential Library. I, I must hear more about Hayes in Paraguay. Uh, have you been down there? How legit is Hayes mania in Paraguay? Yeah, I, I've not been. I, there is a uh, still a recognition of Hayes from the political leaders there. We do get uh, usually the ambassador of the United States from Paraguay tends to make a trip here. We've met multiple ambassadors. Um, however, I, it, you get the impression from some articles that I've read and some people I've talked to that it really doesn't really seep down into the younger generations who, you know, <laughs> see Hayes and they know that there's a school and a city and all these re and regions named after him, but it's just a name. It happened so long ago. They're not really concerned about some old Fogey who made a decision, you know, well before <laughs> they were born. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it's still a big deal for those in the political circles in Paraguay. All right. So that, that is one of my most delightful things in this podcast. I have discovered the connection between one of our presidents and, and Paraguay. Of, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So, so next question, more to what I actually said, we're going to talk about today, uh, getting to civil rights and reconstruction, the topic at hand. Uh, I'd love to start actually at the at the end of Reconstruction, kind of at the end of the story, because it's one of the most pressing questions on my mind. Hayes is often pinned as the president who ended Reconstruction by withdrawing federal troops from the South, which was part of a deal for Southern Democrats to accept his election. But by the time he's sworn in, only two Southern states even have federal troops in them still. So I'm curious, do you think it's fair and accurate to say that Hayes ended Reconstruction. Yeah, this is one of the, I mean, obviously this is one of the 
most common ways that haze will pop up in, in public, in popular media, um, especially in 2020 when there was a yeah. lot of uh, infighting over the results. And um, I believe, and, and Ted, Ted Cruz there at the, um, um, towards the counting of the votes started saying, we should have an electoral commission and he uses 1870 mm. as an example mm-hmm. of this electoral commission, this group of guys who were going to do, look, look at the returns and determine the actual winner. Um, so there, there is this connection that uh, popular media, popular historians kind of connect between this end of reconstruction that you bring up and this uh, supposed uh, corrupt election. And what most historians who study this moment in particular uh, point out is that these two events occur, but they're not necessarily connected. And yeah. it feels like in the popular history, we kind of connect these two things because there was, there were debates between some of Hayes's Ohio guys <laughs> and, some, <laughs> and some Democrats, um, Southern Democrats, um, because after the Electoral Commission had determined that Hazel was the winner, and, and again, that's a whole other story. I'm not sure if totally. you want to go into, but it, it, there was a lot of partisanship and weird things that occurred to make that decision. But after the decision was made and the Electoral Commission ruled and, and Congress um, was working to verify a group of Democrats uh, had this idea to basically forestall the results indefinitely. Um, and maybe, you know, through that, uh, it could be thrown into Congress where they held more members and maybe mm-hmm. uh, they would get Tillman put in. Um, so there were, there were debates about that and, and there were meetings to uh, work around that. But what mo- most historians feel is that the Democratic regulars, the, the leaders, were not interested in that. They were interested in moving on. Mm. Um, and so they actually voted down the potential filibuster. Yeah. So then the question is, who, who, uh, what was the point of those meetings? You know, it's always kind of goes to this meeting at the Lumley Hotel. Yes. Uh, where, where uh, again, Hayes' Ohio guys meet with the <laughs> southern, southern men. The, you're, and, you're really making these Ohio guys sound shady. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the best way. In a way, it's the best way to put it. Because they, they, they are Republicans. Hayes yeah. never would get involved in this stuff. Not because I'm not saying he's somehow above all of it, but simply that was the era where the, both Tilden and Hayes refused to get into the dirt of this political um, fighting because they were, it would stain their, um, sure, you know, their, sure. their uh, reputation. So it was Hayes's uh, close friends or political uh, friends, and they happen to be from Ohio, which is why <laughs> uh, who meet with uh, these guys. And, and there's a lot of theories on what this, this argument, what this, these debates could have been. The most compelling, I think, is from a historian, his name is Michael S. Benedict, who basically argues Hayes is real interested in civil service reform, and yes. he's wanting to try to um, become president without as, with as little arguments and little fighting as possible, because if there's all of this Republican fighting and Democratic fighting, He's his reform agenda may not come through because totally. he's going to have to rely on these Republicans who Grant ended up relying upon, who were the spoiled men. Yeah, and so that's to me the most compelling argument. But that doesn't 
really answer the, the, the question you're asking, which is reconstruction and haze end reconstruction. Yeah. And the answer to me is if we're talking about the last vestiges of federal attempts through, uh, through true placements mm-hmm. uh, to uphold Republican governments in the South, then mm-hmm. the answer is yes. There, yeah. were, there were two that were left, like you mentioned, South Carolina and Louisiana. And he had made the decision that that era needed to end and there needed to be a new era of reconstruction, if you, if you will. But the way we've seemed to define reconstruction with the troop placement, he actually ordered the troops that were around the, the Capitol buildings to mm-hmm. return to their barracks. And when he did that, that was the symbolic end to that. Uh, but as you identify, there were only two states left and Grant, who... Multi, who multiple times throughout the presidency um, attempted to continue reconstruction. Through, was, by the end of it, he was realizing that the public was no longer on his side. There was a lot of backlash every time he used it. There weren't the, the option of, of military engagement for the purposes of reconstruction had really lost public support. Mm. And um, Hayes, in a way, was doing the completing the work that had already begun well before he was even nominated for the presidency. So, um, but the answer is yes. I'll try to backtrack about that. He, sure. he is the guy who, who ended the, the last vestiges of that moment. So it's like, sure, true. He, he ended it, but it also kind of feels like when I was a kid and I find a tray of Oreos and there's two left and I eat them and I get blamed for eating all the Oreos, <laughs> you know, it feels a little unfair. Do you think, like <laughs> the previous the previous director of the of the museum here always um, he always said it that it's kind of like if there were um, you know you're down by a lot of runs in a baseball game and you're the last batter up and you strike out yes. somehow you're blamed for the entire game's loss you know yeah um, so it, there is there is some truth to that <clears throat> so I'd love to dive deeper into the, the moment and the decision. Especially, why didn't Hayes put up a bigger fight to continue Reconstruction? Why did he go ahead and yield and say, "Okay, this is over"? Yeah. Um, well, the kind of like what I was leading into at the end of that last answer is that mm-hmm. the, the public had really moved away from it. Constant um, uh, defunding of the military mm-hmm. um, as Southern Democrats are becoming more and more a part of Congress. You know, they're being readmitted into the Union. And when they're readmitted into the union, they get all their representatives back, all their senators, um, and the and and through oppressive, um, you know, uh, means in the South are preventing uh, newly freed black men from voting. So mm-hmm. you're getting uh, this Southern white contingency in Congress that is defunding the military. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, once once a Democratic governor becomes the governor of that state he is not going to play ball with Washington anymore, you know, which is a requirement of our constitution. And so there is this, there is this um, uh, really the, the, the game is too hard to play at that point. Um, and in Hayes's mind, his hope is to um, move into a new element of reconstruction. And I think this is where we can look at Hayes and be like, Oh man, how naive can you possibly <laughs> <laughs> because his thought was, well, if we end this military occupation, then people will naturally stop fighting in the South, right? We won't, ever, we won't have white men trying to keep black men from voting because they only see black men as Republicans. And if they're not just Republicans, if they're men just like them who may or may not vote, 
for the Democrats or the Republicans, yeah. they're not going to be oppressed. They're not going to be held back from the polls. Yeah. Um, he also believed that there were enough old Southern Whigs from the Whig Party, you know, oh, before wow. the Republicans came out. He yeah. believed there were enough of those guys who would, once the issue of race was settled, they would start to see the Republicans' view when it came, comes to economics and civil service reform and all these other issues that they normally voted with Republicans on, and the hold of the Democratic Party would, would, would loosen in the South. Uh, I think it feels incredibly naive from a modern standpoint because the racism was too deep. The, the, the political um, Democratic Party was too entrenched. Yeah. Um, so I guess you got two things you could think of in my mind. You can say, man, that guy was naive. I can't believe he thought of that idea. Or two, you can say he was playing the best hand he had available to him. Sure, sure. Uh, but one or the other, um, you know, obviously after after Reconstruction ends, you know, this is slow march towards um, continual, uh, you know, laws in the South that would end up being things like Jim Crow laws. And, and then actually, it wouldn't be until, you know, 1950s and 60s when we start to see. Um, yeah, so, actually, I was going to ask about that. What was the impact of withdrawal? And you kind of just answered this, you know, how quickly does Jim Crow set in in the South once the feds are gone? Yeah, it's hard. It, it's, it's one of those things. It's hard to sort of pinpoint the aha moment when Jim Crow comes in. Obviously, when you thought when we talk about um, uh, Plessy v. Ferguson that happens in the 1890s, that's when it's sort of codified this idea of separate but equal. Mm-hmm. But these types of um, attacks on civil rights in the South mm-hmm. um, are increasingly growing. Once Democratic governors had controls of the states, once Congress realized that the federal government, or once the states realized that the federal government was not going to be um, infringing or put, they had no mechanism to uphold any of their civil rights acts or, or any yeah. sort of uh, civil rights in general. Yeah. Um, it was just a slow march to absolute, you know, <laughs> um, repression, corrupt repression. Do you get the sense that Hayes regretted this decision later in life, that he wished he had fought harder or kept the troops down there or, or done anything differently? Um, <clears throat> I think he, well, you know, here, here's something that he, he said. You know, at the end of his presidency, he was looking back on it and his decision. And he said that my judgment was that the time had come to put an end to bayonet rule. My task was to wipe out the collar line, to abolish sectionalism, to end the war and bring peace. Um, and, then, and then he finishes, I was ready to resort to unusual measures and to risk my own standing and reputation with my party and the country. So he seemed to have this idea that this was a gambit and he was putting his reputation on the line to make this, hopefully make this gambit come through. But I think here he is writing it in the last full year of his presidency. And he's saying in a, in, in a not so uh, obvious way, I guess here, you know, he's saying it failed. And so I think there is this, I think there is this regret that the outcome was not what he thought it would be. Um, but I don't, but I, but I really feel like that's one of the few um, indications we have of it. Um, he did still have a lot of support um, from Southern uh, Black men. You know, there were ones who were able to vote at the time. Sure, sure. Um, and so I think there was still uh, the rawness of what would come later, I guess, the, that, that Jim Crow that would come a little bit later hadn't quite sunk in on him quite yet what it was leading to uh, so maybe there wasn't the uh, straight 
outright regret that you might want to see from someone, right? That that yeah. made such a consequential decision. <laughs> um. So so that's we talked a lot about kind of the end of the story of Hayes and civil rights and reconstruction. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, you've been writing, I mentioned earlier, a series of articles about Hayes and anti-slavery and abolitionists and all that. And you write about how Hayes was raised by an uncle who was an anti-abolitionist. So what were Hayes' early views on slavery and when did they start to mature and change and why? Yeah, um, well, you know, early views, uh, he really embraces what his uncle's name was Sardis. His uh, Rutherford's dad died a few months before Rutherford yeah. was born. So he was raised by his mom and his mom's younger brother. His name was Sardis. And Sardis was a Whig. Now, the family had come from Vermont, and they had traveled and settled in Ohio before Rutherford was born. Mm -hmm. And so that's important to the story because Vermont is uh, in the area that is probably that is the most sort of abolitionist, right? They have that yeah. strongest yeah. background of that movement. And so Hayes has his uncle who was raising him, Sardis, who came to Ohio at a, at a youngish age, he was a teenager, and he takes on the Whig party, but he takes it on in a way that is also anti-abolitionist. Mm. And he has this other uncle who he writes about so fondly in Vermont still, his name was Austin, who was, who, or sorry, did I say Sardis? Sardis was anti-abolitionist. Austin yes. was an abolitionist. Yeah, I think you got that right. <laughs> and so, you know, but he's raised by Sardis and he loves Austin, but those views really seep into Rutherford. And he goes, um, he grows up that way. He, when he visits Vermont, his Vermont family tells him, oh, uh, he wants, they were, they were talking about the school he was going to. And they say, we want to send our, one of your cousins there too. And then Rutherford basically tells him there are no abolitionists at this school. Oh. And the, 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 and then the Vermont family was like, well, then never mind. We're not gonna <laughs> and then Hayes writes back to Sardis and basically says, and basically makes fun of them for the way they feel about abolitionism. So, wow. you know, so Rutherford definitely has taken on this anti-abolitionist um, feeling that Sardis had. Later on, to answer your question, maybe I, there is no real um, moment that I've pinpointed yet where, where the, the light flicks on for Hayes. Mm -hmm. And he becomes an abolitionist. Well, I would never say that he becomes an abolitionist. That that has a different connotation to it. It does. But he definitely becomes anti-slavery yes. uh, by the yeah. 1850s. And I don't know the moment that that clicks on, but I I believe that once he moves to Cincinnati hmm. and he starts rubbing shoulders with famous abolitionists, he joins a literary club there. Mm -hmm. um, they're talking a lot intellectually about the political moments at the time. And you see an evolution in the way he's writing about this. And it slowly gets to the point to where he's not only writing to in favor of Indian slavery, but he's also defending slaves or fugitive slaves in the courts. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a combination of his move to Cincinnati and the people he's around, but it's also the fact that this is that moment, the 1850s, after the Fugitive Slave, yes, 1850 yes. Fugitive Slave Law, yeah. when the North is starting to identify politically with Indian slavery. And so Hayes, in a lot of ways, is following into the trends of what the Republican Party is doing as well. Awesome. And you started getting into the area that I wanted to talk about next. And that's this, this time in Cincinnati where he's starting to represent some, some Fugitive Slaves. It's the time of the Fugitive Slave Act, which you know, basically that makes it easier for Southerners to come up and get their slaves back. Mm -hmm. um, 
what got him into that in particular? Like, do, do we know what led to him starting to represent these uh, escape slaves? And do we know how many he represented? Um, we know for a fact, well, <laughs> that's, it depends on who you ask. Uh, if you want to- <laughs> <laughs> if Yeah, it was depending on who I was reading, uh, you know, a month ago. So, yeah. <laughs> well, if you, if you ask Rutherford B. Hayes, if we could bring him back to life and ask him, yeah. uh, at the end of his life, he was being interviewed and, and said that there, that there came to his knowledge about 40 cases. Um, and, and he said that he um, defended 30 to 40 fugitive slaves in some way in his time in, in, in Cincinnati. Um, he then says that three or four of the cases, only three or four of the cases came to the ears of the public. Uh, but from modern or from our historical record looking back, there's only evidence of two. Oh, okay. So, you know, there's a good chance a lot of it didn't make it in the newspapers, which sure. that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, so he may be right, 30 to 40. He may be, um, but but what we can go on are the two that he actually did. He actually defended. And that those happened in 1853 and 1855. Okay. So shortly after, within three years of moving, three to four years of moving to Cincinnati, um, he's gone from anti-abolitionist to defending slaves. So something happens there in those three to four years um, to where he's made that switch. Um, and I don't know what it is. You know, again, like I said, there's that uh, interacting with his literary club members. He's interacting with Sam and Chase. He actually writes that Sam and Chase was uh, boring. Uh, so he doesn't particularly <laughs> like Sam and Chase, <laughs> but he likes what he, he actually likes what he stands for. He talks about um, Levi Coffin. He actually says that he never went to bed without expecting to be called out by Levi Coffin, who was a you know abolitionist there in Cincinnati. Uh, he beats Cassius Clay from Kentucky. He actually helped defend the slave with a guy named James Burney, who was this famous ex-slave holder who moves to the north and becomes an abolitionist. Um, so it, it's the people he's around, from what I can tell, and they're uh, convincing him of of this course, and he's and he's following it. So, so we know of two cases in the historic record. How do you do on those? Did, did he win? Is he 2-0? <laughs> Is he 0-2? <laughs> well, you know what? I'm going to say 1-0 and, and, and 1. You know, there's like this okay. weird. <laughs> I'm going to start with the one that he won first, even though it's chron- chronologically out of order. But the one, that he, uh, the one that he won involved a girl named Rosetta Armstead, who was uh, a girl who was being transported to Wheeling, Virginia at the time. And uh, normally that would require a ride along the Ohio River, but the, it was winter and the river was frozen. So they took him across and the slave owner's proxy, so not the actual slave owner, but somebody had moved, he makes the decision, well, the river's frozen. I'm going to take this nonstop train ride from Cincinnati to Wheeling. And if the train doesn't stop, you know, nothing's going to happen. Well, after he makes that decision, he finds out the train is going to stop. And so he gets off in Columbus uh, because he knows people there. So he was going to take Rosetta to, this, to these people's house, keep her quiet, keep it safe, right? <laughs> uh, and, then, and then once the train, get her back on the train, get her willing and no one would know. Well, word did get out. And uh, a group of, of Black women actually start to surround the house and get the, um, the, the, the police officers involved and they have her wow. removed from the home. Um, and number of court cases, she's, she's brought to court there in Columbus 
and they determined that um, she should be free because when the proxy brought her over, that was an act of freeing her. Wow. Uh, so she was let go. She went was was put in the custody of, of a man. His name was Van Slyke. She was in the custody of this guy. And then uh, the slave owner wasn't happy with that. So he actually goes back and uh, tries to capture her. A number of things happen, but they they end up taking her, moving her to the south. Van Slyke realizes that she'd been kidnapped. And he actually contacts his, his people in Cincinnati and said, don't let her get into Kentucky. Get her off the train before they get there. Yeah. And they do that. And so in Cincinnati, she goes before the court again. Um, and once again, the court says that she's free. And then I don't want to get into the muck of the Fugitive Slave Act, but the, but the mar- but U.S. Marshals are required to, uh, yes. to, to make this happen. Right. So the U.S. Marshal actually, after she's ruled free, still takes her. And, uh, and it's at this moment where, he, where Marshals could actually ask for basically citizen posses to yes. protect him. Yes. And he stands out and he says, you must protect me because I got to take her to the South, even though she'd been freed twice by courts. Wow. So it goes before the, the, the U.S. Commission, the, uh, the, the commissioners, the, the commissioners who are the ones who are supposed to determine, I guess, supposed to in quotes, determine whether or not she's free or not. Right. And that's where Hayes gets involved. So got it. Before the commissioner, actually, it's Sam and Chase, it's Hayes, and they uh, once again defend Rosetta. Yeah. And Van Slyke makes this comment. If it wasn't for Hayes's closing argument, she wouldn't have gone free. Uh, sounds like a cool thing. I, most likely Van Slyke was just happy that it worked out in his totally. favor. Totally. Um, it, she had already been freed twice before. It was very likely she would have been freed again. But that was the final uh, nail in the coffin. She was let go. And yeah. Hayes, Hayes was a part of the team that, that accomplished that. Um, the other one's a little bit... That one's a fun, interesting, fun in a modern looking back standpoint, right? Well, like, yeah, I, I love the <laughs> part about the, the woman surrounding the house and, and freeing yeah. their fellow. That's amazing. Yeah, the, uh, what is it? The, uh, it was the proxy. I forget his name now. That's why I keep calling him proxy. But, but he, <laughs> he, I think he wrote down that um, the, these, these women were like birds of ill omen surrounding the home. So, they, so you know, <laughs> but um yeah, you know, a very compelling story. And um, the other instance was this slave. His name was Lewis. And this ha- actually happens two years before Rosetta. He he uh, fled uh, Kentucky before the Fugitive Slave Law, law was, the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law was enacted. And he made his way into Ohio um, and had been there for a long time, you know, uh, three or four years before um, he was uh, finally uh, caught. And his case goes before uh, the court as well. And it's between, and James Burney and Rutherford Hayes are the ones defending him. And there are, Hayes is doing a lot of weird things to keep the court people from, keep the judge from, from determining the outcome. Uh, some of it's based on these laws of this uh, ideas of positive law and the idea that you can't be a slave unless that state says you're a slave. And he's in Ohio and we don't see it here. He's asking for Kentucky laws because he's like, well, Kentucky is a free. Is that a slave state or a free state? He's kind of acting dumb. Like, is that slave or free? We need the laws to determine whether Kentucky is a slave state or not. <laughs> you know, they're getting these slaves there. And every time there was trying to bring evidence and he's probably he's basically saying no unless it's positively stated that this is a slave state she's free or he's free this is Lewis. yes he's free and so he's 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 making all of these arguments and finally the judge asks both teams to come to the front 
they're leaning in and they're talking to each other to, to, to have a discussion. We don't know what they're discussing, but they're discussing yeah. uh, Lewis's case. And the Supreme Court justice was trying to get involved, Judge McLean, who was on circuit there. And yeah. so um, when they were discussing, um, Lewis, through the encouragement of the crowd, starts to push his chair backwards. <laughs> and supposedly one of the people in the front row took his hat off and put it on Lewis's head. He was then further encouraged and he made his way out through the crowd and out the back door while they were discussing. <laughs> and so he had jumped in a stagecoach or a wagon or whatever. I'm sorry, a wagon and was taken off. Um, and um, the, it, he was gone before the marshal recognized it. And the marshal screaming, Lewis, he's gone. He escaped. And they're going to run it out for it. Um, and this and apparently the, this this courtroom was packed with with free black people yeah. who are just smiling and they're not going to give up, you know, where Lewis. Totally. Took yeah. And Lewis made his way. Uh, actually, he stayed there for a while while everyone was on it. This is supposedly he stayed there in, in Cincinnati for a while while I all this it. was going on. And um, they had sent report the the Underground Railroad uh, um network of people had sent re, uh, reports to all these newspapers that Lewis had escaped into Canada and he was already gone. So you can go back through the newspaper records and find like the Buffalo paper saying, Oh, the same Lewis slave escaped into Canada. Um, and it's not true. He's still in Cincinnati. So all of these people think that he had already escaped. And then after all the, all of that had died down, then they, then they took him up and out. So, you know, there was no ruling. We don't know if Hayes would have won that case or not, but Lewis took it into his own hands. I, I like how this ends with kind of the diehard plot. They're not going to catch you if they think you're already gone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and th this is the first time I get to reference diehard on the podcast, so I feel like this was a job well done. Um, <laughs> the, okay, so one of the other things, first of all, thanks for those two fantastic stories. Yeah. Um, kind of similar to how, depending what I was reading or who you're listening to, you see different numbers, how many people are represented. I also see different claims about how involved he might have been in the Underground Railroad. Was he involved or an ally of the Underground Railroad from what you can tell? Um, yeah, this is all going to come down from what he's saying as a, as a guy in the last year of his life. Um, uh, he, he's being interviewed um, often about this stuff, and he's, he, he makes these claims that he, not only was he, you know, he says that his his services would be offered freely to the Underground Railroad when needed. You know, mm -hmm. Levi Coffin being one of the directors and officers who would who would um, um, ask him for help. Mm. He claims that he saved slaves from the reverse Underground Railroad or free black people from the reverse sure. Underground Railroad yeah. um, from being put into slavery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he claims that as well. Uh, no evidence other than his claims, you know. Um, so it's it's just whether or not you want to take him for his word or not. I'll give him credit. Sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, we've talked about how he he becomes a lawyer. He starts defending a couple of slaves. He starts getting more into this anti-slavery movement. What else does he do as a, as a private citizen in the 1850s to get involved in civil rights? Is, is there anything else he does? Really, not I guess, say, any time between then and his presidency. So in Congress also. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't. I think I think that's one of the. Maybe one of the more frustrating, maybe not might not be the word, but I, I think we have this uh, desire from when reading about these men in the past, that they're going to be a little more 
of a firebrand, right? A little right. bit more vocal, yeah. Yeah. a little bit more in your face about their views. And Hayes just is never that, you know, even in the things he's really passionate about, like civil service reform, um, there's always this tempered sort of approach to it. Um, and I think the same frustration kind of happens here. Um, he is defending uh, fugitive slaves. He is uh, rubbing shoulders with these guys, and you start to see some fire in him. Uh, it does happen a little bit once the Civil War breaks out, um, and he be, and he joins. And uh, one of my favorite quotes um, from him is a quote where uh, he was under the the leadership of uh, General Cox, um, and. General Cox was received a letter from General Garfield, who would go on to be the president after Hayes, right? Mm -hmm. And it basically, General Garfield is is saying that um, that the war um, is more to uh, the are the, sorry, there is more blame to be going on guys like General Sherman um, because of their inability to see the actual reasons for the war being slavery. And Hayes says um, <clears throat> he knows that this is the reason for the war. He writes, um, time and the progress of events are solving all the questions arising or, or sla on slavery in a way that is consistent with the eternal principles of, principles of justice. Slavery is getting death blows as an institution that perishes in this war. It will take years to get rid of, but the debris uh, will take forever. Hmm. Um, he says... Uh, we are at the same high call here today, freedom, freedom for all. We all know that this is the essence of the contest. So he's making these strong claims of, of slavery being the purpose of the war. Yeah. Well before the Emancipation Proclamation. Yeah. Uh, before these moments when people are still debating whether this is a desire to, to save the Union or whether this is truly about slavery. Mm. Um, and Hayes makes a very, uh, very strong stance that this war is about slavery and slavery needs to end. Um, part of his argument, of course, is humanitarian. Uh, there were a number of what were called um, uh, co uh, contraband uh, slaves who yeah, were coming yeah, yeah. across. And he, through the direction a lot, honestly, of his wife, Lucy, um, refuses to do anything that would send these uh, men who had escaped back into the South. Um, and he would keep them with him in his regiment, uh, use, use them for their knowledge, or he would send them up north. He actually sent some up, supposedly, to his uncle Sardis, of all people, who, while he sort of went into the same uh, political evolution that Hayes went through, mm. never really could slay the demon of racism in his own life. So, mm. Mm. Uh, but, but Hayes still sent contrabands up to his place, hoping that, that Sardis would give them employment or something to do. Yeah. Um, when the war is winding down, he is be, he was nominated for Congress. Yeah. Um, and when he gets to Congress, he actually uh, becomes an ally to the radical Republicans, you know, guys yeah. like Thaddeus Stevens and Sumner. And he supports this in, in his voting record. He actually goes to the South and uh, surveys the Freedmen's Bureau. Oh. says that uh, he he actually writes a friend and says, you need to let me know if I'm getting too deep into this because I feel I feel um, I feel that I'm in in deep basically with these radical Republicans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So much so that when he's running for the governor position for his first term, yeah. he runs explicitly on a radical Republican plank. That's bold. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's doing this on black voting rights in yeah. you know, Ohio, and this was still something to debate, and just absolutely um, identifies himself with that part of the Republican Party. I will say that changes as time goes by, um, but at this moment, if you're asking about what where Hayes had that fire of civil rights in him. I <laughs> yeah. would say uh, 1860s. Um, it's it's definitely there. So what about uh, as when he's a president and then after the White House as a private citizen, what does he do for civil rights in these stages of his life? Yeah, I there the the moment of civil rights as a presidency, I, I do I do think that this is a missed opportunity for him. He was a president who believed firmly that if anything was going to be passed into law, it needed to have some sort of enforcement mechanism. Mm. And there wasn't any enforcement mechanisms Mm. for this. One of the big moments where you see him swing his bat hard for civil rights is this moment when um, the Southern Southern members of the Congress, the Democratic Congress, are trying to add riders to an army appropriations bill. Yeah. To prevent troops being used to per, to monitor polls you know, for federal elections, and Hayes vetoes these bills one after the other, and, and Democrats keep throwing them at him, and he keeps throwing them back, until finally he gets the bill without the objectionable writer, and it was seemed to be this huge success not only for civil rights but for Hayes's presidency. But there is more to the story than that, to be honest. I, he, he does identify this with a proper, perhaps, civil rights action. Mm-hmm. But he also, he actually writes more fervently about how Congress is trying to usurp the powers of the presidency here. Oh, so there is also yeah. this fight between Congress and the executive and where powers lie for things like this. And so uh, there is that element as well. Um, but as far as civil rights, I'll be honest, doesn't outside of that reconstruction um, moment yeah. and his desire, basically he was a guy who believed a lot in moral suasion and he thought, Wait, what? Moral what? <laughs> he didn't believe that laws were going to be the way to move forward with civil rights in the South. You could only do it by proper example and, and through and the uplifting of of men in the South through education, white and black men. Yeah. So his mind was more on the nebulous sort of ideas of how do we help everyone become educated so that these basically um, uh, ignorant views on racism could be yeah. educated out of these people, right? And and um, again, maybe naive, maybe grand. I don't know, but yeah, um, yeah very aspirational and hopeful and and, and naive is kind of what it all sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've been diving a lot into Hayes, this evolution on civil rights, anti-slavery. I'm curious if, if you were to rank presidents on lifetime body of work, what they did for civil rights, where, where would you rank Hayes? Oh, and why? Yeah, this is a hard one. Um, not very highly. Uh, I'll be honest. It's he's, he's in this, dead zone of civil rights activity uh, here. Um, 
honestly, he kind of is the first of a line of presidents who simply just don't even, it doesn't even seem to enter into the equation of their consideration on a lot of things they're doing. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of sad, but I, I guess I would put him in the bottom half. Um, there are obviously a lot of examples of people, of presidents who did overtly negative things, right? For, yeah. <laughs> in the South. I would put him above those guys. Yeah. Uh, but if, but if we're looking for positive examples, um, I don't know. I don't know what we can really point to. He's just kind of like a net zero guy. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Now, some people would argue and say, well, he's not net zero because of his reconstruction, you know, policy. Um, And maybe that, and maybe that's true. Um, I think that requires a little bit of investigation into what his options were at this point, what he could really have done to turn this thing around and move it back the other direction. But um, I will say it's not, if we want to take it in context and we want to put it in the context of that particular moment, Mm -hmm. there were Republicans who still wanted to fight and who still wanted to uphold reconstruction. So put it in the time we can say that he didn't side with those guys. Yeah. Um, And so we can put some negative points in his direction in this. And so, yeah, maybe there is, I wouldn't say net zero. I would say he's in the negative, but not deep in the red. Oh, come on, Rutherford. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I got just two last questions for you. Uh, First, uh, what lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from President Hayes? Yeah, that's a good, good question. And I probably feel a little insignificant to make too many conclusions, but I do think that I guess one of the big uh, bones, I guess I have to pick with some of the way that we look at the presidency is this is we seem to really enjoy the individuals who are pushing hard for certain agendas, using the bully pulpit, yeah. um, you know, going with guys like Teddy Roosevelt, who was just really out there and, and, and pushing, pushing things forward. And, you know, Hayes <clears throat> wasn't one of those guys. So leadership from what I'm assuming, and I've not done, you know, this is pure assumption that we really value that type of leadership. Um, In which case I would say that um, maybe, maybe, um, maybe we don't want to learn something from him in that way. (laughs) But I think that we can learn that there is something to a soft approach. Someone who um, isn't attempting to push his or her ego Mm-hmm. Um, above those of others who's willing to take it back. I mean, he never engaged um, with negative press. He refused to. Mm-hmm. He let it go. If you're yeah. talking about the first couple of years of his presidency, when you know he was called things like your Ruther fraud and his fraud. Those matter of fact, Ruther Ruther, Ruther fraud comes from the Republican Party. It was his oh, own yeah. party. You calling that? So oh, yeah. <laughs> so it, you know that's that's a hard pill to to swallow. And mm-hmm. and so there is this. Um, I think if we're going to learn something from his leadership, maybe it's the fact that even though he was dealt such a difficult uh, first couple of years, he kept his head down, he kept working. And by the end, um, he did have a lot of people who supported him running for a second term. You know, he, when he was nominated, he said he only wanted one term and that yep. was it. Yep. And he stuck by it. Uh, but I think there's something to say that at this moment when we'd had Republican after Republican after Republican, 
this was a moment where we could see a Democrat take over and, you know, maybe through some of the way people viewed his presidency, they passed some of that on to Garfield, who was elected president next. Yeah. Um, so I think I think if we're, if we're looking at it from a leadership standpoint of of someone who's uh, going to ignore all the all the emotion and all the ups and downs and yeah. stay steady and even, yeah. I think that's what we can pull from him. <clears throat> Awesome. And so the last question I have for you, and this, this is something kind of that, that we touched on at the top of, of the show. Uh, when Hayes was elected, half the country thought he had actually lost the election and thought he was an illegitimate president, which sounds kind of familiar. We are living again at a time when a not insignificant percent of the country thinks the current president was elected fraudulently. What can we learn from Hayes about how to effectively lead when your legitimacy is questioned? Um, wow. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you can't, you can't go it out. I don't know. I, I think I would, lean back <laughs> I think I would lean back on the, you know, here's what I'll do. I think I'll answer. A, I, I think I'll lean back on the previous idea of, of trying not to engage too much, but, but I think to give a little bit something different to this question. Yeah. What I would point to is the way if we're talking about 2020. Sure. And we, and we see a desire to, um, okay. Well, per, a perceived desire to maybe not care, care less about the actual workings of how our system works and more interest in whether or not, uh, I had won or not and, and putting it all into question based on what I think the outcome should be, not what on the system has created. Um, I think I think we can look at, I know that was a very vague way to try to say something, but <laughs> I <would> hopefully, <laughs> but I think what I think what we can pull from Hayes and Tilden both is that when all this Kurt, uh, controversy was going on, both guys, um, felt they had won. If you read yeah, their, if you yeah, read their yeah. uh, personal <laughs> stuff, both of them are saying, I won this contest. You know, Hayes has his reasons, Tilden has his reasons, but they never put it out there in the public in a way to try to undermine people's confidence in the process of determining the winner. Uh, moving forward, they, they both seem to think and act as if democracy and the constitution were more important than their personal ambitions. And I think regardless of what the outcome of that election would have been, both men would have done what Tilden did and ignore the people who asked him to go to Washington anyway, to take the oath of office. They yeah. would fight, you know, with war, it would fight, you know, violently to, to see him nominated. If, if it, the, the shoe were on the other foot, Hayes would have done the same thing. Yeah. So I think that's the element that we can learn from this election versus maybe for versus 2020. Got it. Got it. So, so no tips for leading when everyone thinks you're a loser. <laughs> Good I advice think, think, for just accepting when you lose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, I think that's the advice. I think that's what we learn from these guys is that yeah. when, when you can't, you can't thrash back against the negative 
feelings that people have towards you because you're not going to actually change mm-hmm. their minds. Yeah. The only way you can change minds is to through the steady, um, steadily moving forward with what you think is right and hoping people come along to, to see it the same way. Um, I like that. That sounds like a good kernel of advice right there. Here we go. Cool. Um, If you'd like to hear more from Dustin, please check out his recent series of articles on Hayes evolving views on uh, slavery and reconstruction on the Rutherford B. Hayes Presidential Library and Museum's website. And then you can also give the Hayes Library a visit in Fremont, Ohio. If I'm ever in Fremont, I will. Uh, Thank you so much for your time, Dustin. Thank you for having me. It was great. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's always good to hear from y'all. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. This helps me write books and pay to host the show. And thank you everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, we'll look at the life and presidency of James Garfield, a man who's going to pick up the reformist mantle and go toe-to-toe with Lord Roscoe and his henchman, Chet Arthur. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>